Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. In the studio today, it is Gregor Robertson, Alison Rudd and Matt Dickinson. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. hello. Lovely to hello, see hello, you all. Hello, I get three. You do get three and I like that. And Alison, first time we've got the chance to congratulate you on your SJ or A award. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. I'm blushing. Thank you. Oh, well... Richly deserved. Richly. Absolutely. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, fantastic. Congratulations thank you. to you as well. Thank you. We'll bypass me. <laughs> no. Thank you. No. no, no, that's very kind, Gregor. Thank you very much. Yes, we're full of award winners in, on this podcast today. Um, coming up, we are going to discuss Wilfred Zaha, Liverpool's unbeaten run coming to an end, and Matt Dickinson tells us about his new over 50s football team. All that to come after this. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And the front page of the game today reads coming of age as the 19-year-old Phil Foden puts in a man-of-the-match performance to help Manchester City beat Aston Villa and lift their third consecutive League Cup. 71 touches, 46 out of 51 passes completed, five shots and a nice assist for Sergio Aguero's opener. The performance had it all. So, Gregor, was this the performance of a man who is ready to be a Premier League regular? Absolutely. Um, I think in any other... Premier League club other than Liverpool perhaps he already would be um, he's te- technically as good a, a midfielder as England have really I think um, that touch with outside of his left foot that's the first thing that comes to mind it was just kind of beautiful I think it was a switch from Zinchenko mm. and just outside of his left foot into his path it was kind of the kind of thing that you see uh, Riyad Mahrez do often um, and I think actually this performance showed his flexibility, the fact that he's played out wide and he was still such a threat. Um, glides across the turf. Really good at using his body to protect the ball for someone so slight as well. And he's deceptively quick. So, yeah, no, I thought it was a great performance from him. And, I, you know, we've had the same discussion for quite a long time about the opportunities he's been afforded. Um, I don't think he can hang around much longer, I think. If he needs to be playing pretty soon. Mm. Matt, you were there. How impressive was he? Absolutely, couldn't agree more with Gregor. That that I was actually that touch that from the Zinchenko ball was right in front of us, and you, uh, I think I've written this morning. You could feel almost the whole stadium purr when you saw it. It was just, it was the you know just to have those soft feet. Um, but it wasn't just that you know cutting back. It was a menace. Uh, you know there was a real punch to his game, getting shots off. Um, and you know I think um, you know he has to be you know obviously pushing for a city place which is going to take a bit of patience David Pep Guardiola is talking about succeeding David Silva and the the fact that when Silva leaves at the end of the season they won't need to buy a replacement so I guess that's some encouragement for him and I guess the really interesting question is 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 he going to get a chance in the senior England team 
in the next two friendlies and therefore be pushing for Euro 2020. I mean, it's it's fascinating. There are a lot of players around that area. So obviously we know, you know, why, if you're talking about the position he played yesterday, wide forward, Jaden Sancho and, and Raheem Sterling and Marcus Rashford are, are pretty, um, pretty strong contenders. But the, one of the great things about Foden is that he could play in a in a sort of more of a number eight deeper midfield role as well so he's pushing very hard well you brought up England and whether or not he should be called up do you think he should uh on this form I'd certainly want him in those um two friendly games I think it's you know with a tournament coming up you know he's also up against the like I mean Mason Mount and and Madison have obviously sort of jumped jumped ahead in terms of Southgate's look partly because Foden hasn't had as many opportunities but if I was an England manager you know looking at the form of different players wanting to see him up close just see you know work with him get to know him a bit I would bring him in now for these two friendlies just to maximize the options I've got Mm, I I think he's the least English midfielder that England have I I mean that's a compliment not like in a bad way but he's he's like a little Spaniard he's so technical you know Grealish plays with a bit of a swagger and that's not something that England have in many players either but to have someone he's like a a product very much a product of this modern Manchester City I think he's been coached very well and so good technically so yeah I I think he should definitely be someone that Southgate's having a look at that said, the cup final was just his ninth start of the season. Three of them coming in the League Cup, only two in, in the Premier League. Is that really enough experience, Alison, for, for Gareth Southgate to, to call him up? Well, I think you could flip it and say it's perfect because the problem with being um, an international manager and dealing with international football is that you're you're piecing together players who don't know each other that well. Um, you The systems might be different philosophy might be different the whole vibe might be different and if Phil Foden can play like that when he isn't really part of the gang but what I was most impressed with was the way he was at ease with the team at some points looked like he was bossing bossing it totally totally with it and as if as if it looked like the performance of someone who's played every minute of every game of the season and that is a quality that an international manager ought to really relish because it looked like certainly worth trying out isn't it that he could slot into a reasonably established England team and and work out with a bit of training how to how to relax into his best form so I I, I, you can yeah I get your point if he's not playing enough first team football isn't that a negative but but, you know it probably means he's fresher than most and he's something's happened along the way because I thought he looked really confident and like he looked like somebody who'd just walked onto the final final plinth and thought this is it mm. this is my moment and didn't get overexcited either so you too would suggest it's Southgate should look worth, at him it's definitely worth seeing isn't yeah. it mm. I mean Gregor you mentioned a bit before about if you know if he doesn't start breaking into the squad as a regular that he'd, he'll have to look elsewhere but as Matt told us um and as we know, David Silva will be leaving. You would expect that he will be, from the way he plays, that natural successor. But you still feel like if if, if it doesn't go to plan, he'll have to leave Manchester City. Well, I think next season, if he's not playing regularly, then he has to leave. Because we've been having this, this same discussion for two or three years. Um, the only reason we're having this discussion about him being in the England team or not is because he's not playing enough. That's Well, that's that'd be Southgate's argument. So, And any other club, he would be. Um so yeah, that that seems like he even he has a kind of stock answer for the for the interviews as well. He says, you know, I've got 
Kevin De Bruyne and David Silva in front of me, and that's a good good answer to the question, you know. Mm. But from next year, he won't. So he's got to play next year, and if he doesn't, he's got to look elsewhere. Well, there was a lot of focus on Foden, as there was on Jack Grealish. And, and Matt, you've been writing about Grealish in, in the game today. Probably was a frustrating day for, for the Villa captain. Yeah, I mean, I, I think as much as losing, you know, losing the final as captain, hometown team, that's going to have hurt. But I think even more, knowing the ambition he has, and as Gregor mentioned, the swagger he has, would have been the fact that he was so peripheral in a cup final. You know, you can imagine, yeah, obviously they were underdogs um, but you could have, you must. He must have thought, you know, this is Wembley. This is where I can at least, you know, strut my stuff a bit. And, you know, he obviously did pick up an injury somewhere down the line. He was barely walking, um, barely able to run by the end. But uh, he had a good he, cramp in his calves, and they're, they're big calves, to be fair. Yeah, well, <laughs> absolutely. Um, and he, he, yeah, it was just, yeah. I mean, it was partly that that Villa didn't function through him too much. He looked like he was trying too hard at times. I mean, there was a couple of overhit balls and he, 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 yeah, it was just one of those afternoons that that didn't start great for him and just never took off. And um, yeah, it must be massively frustrating. And then, of course, we've just been talking about Foden. He must look at it partly from a club point of view and partly from an international point of view, yet, you know, yet to get this international call-up that he craves. And, you know, he must look at, at... at now, at other opportunities, you mm. know, I'm sure he'll be desperate to keep Villa up. Um, but I think this summer is a real crossroads for him, depending on you know who comes in bidding the right sort of money. With regards to to the final, then were the tactics employed by Villa sort of, in a sense, restrict what Grealish could do, or was actually he in general was he just not on his game? Well, I think it's a bit of both. I mean, obviously, you know, City were going to dominate the the ball. You know, the goal that's the, the, the Villa got was a sort of fast break, you know, capitalised on an error. They didn't manage to play through him too much. He was sort of chasing around, trying to... But, I mean, I've mentioned in the, the touch map yeah, this morning, you know, he only had 46 touches all game. Um, and I think he, you know, he, he barely had, you know, one or two dribbles. His, his pass completion was down at 75%, I think. So I, I, you know, I think it was difficult for him because it was difficult for Villa. But I just think he just looked like someone who sort of quite early sensed that things just weren't quite happening for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say certainly by the second half, it was almost like he was sort of yeah uh, trying trying a bit hard. Mm. And as you've suggested, Alison, I'll come to you on this. Um, we've talked about Phil Foden and what future holds for him. Should he stay or should he go from Manchester City? What about? Jack Grealish, even if Aston Villa stay up, is is that really the right club for him to be at, for him to progress, or should he be moving on? Well, if if it's if he's capable of being objective about his life and career, I, he ought to be very intrigued by how he would function at a different club, because he's completely defined by his connection to the club, his love for the club, staying with them. You know, he he's so I probably. I don't know. I can't. I'm struggling to think of another Premier League set of fans who have a connection with a player out who plays regularly as as the Villa fans do with Jack Grealish. There's so there's just so much love for him. You know the replica haircuts. The he's a cult figure there. That'd be hard to leave behind. Well, that, but yeah, I'm saying if he could, if he could put all that to one side, it would be intriguing for everybody else and possibly for him and the people close to him to know how he would function without that bolstering him because I think that does define partly how he plays and how his manager treats him he's a he's a talisman and an icon and it, it everything is about him every build up to any 
big game for Villa is about Jack Grealish because it's just too easy. It's just the narrative, isn't it? It's that local guy who is talented enough to go to a bigger club, who isn't struggling to stay in the Premier League. But I do think when you watch him play, and let's take the final away because, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a Wembley appearance and probably there was too much on his shoulders. But I've seen other games where you think, I don't think there's another club that would allow Jack Grealish that freedom on the pitch. To You know, he dictates the rhythm of a game often. And it can, that can serve Villa well, and sometimes it does not serve them well. They need to be a bit more pragmatic and calm sometimes. So I'd, it may be he's not very much at all without Villa. It may be he's just a scampering lunatic if you take away the club. <laughs> or it may be it allows him to step up to become a more mature, a more mature player with more to him. So it's intriguing, but it could backfire horribly if he left for a bigger club and he could disappear. It would definitely need to be the right move, that's all you want to say, because... As we've seen with Foden, with you know potential without game time is is worthless. Really, he needs to wherever he goes, he needs to be. He still needs to be an important figure at that club. Well, Liverpool will not match Arsenal's unbeaten season after a humbling 3-0 defeat at Watford on Saturday night. It means their incredible run of 18 straight league wins and 40 games undefeated is over, just short of Arsenal's 49 undefeated record. Alison, we know Liverpool are still going to win the league, so do you care about losing the unbeaten record? I actually don't, not at <clears> all. <throat> didn't, didn't feel sad, glum. At all, didn't mind at Come all. On, I was very Alison. glad. No, I was very, very glad it wasn't City or United or Everton that did it. Mm-hmm. That what did it? I found myself. You can say I'm fibbing. But this is the truth. I found myself utterly admiring Watford for. I, I thought what Liverpool thought, which was they're going to get tired. They can't keep this up. And this is partly how Liverpool have kept this amazing run going, is because they 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 time it so well. And teams really lift their game and they lift it too far. And then in the final 10, 15 minutes, they just can't keep up with it. And Liverpool sliced them apart. Watford did not rest. I did find myself thinking, good on you, Watford. And I hope every Liverpool fan now hopes that Watford stays up for doing it. Well, as things stand, and let's say this is just a little blip and Liverpool get back to their unbeaten ways, they will win the Premier League title with a record points total. Given the choice then, Alison, and I might ask all of you this, would you rather that, so they win the Premier League title with a record point total, or win the title but be invincible? That's my question to you. Oh, record points total, obviously. Can't have the other <laughs> one. The no, I know, but I'm just asking, if you could have had either, what, you know? I think the record points total is more relevant because it's more recent mm-hmm. and it feels more like a proper competition whereas Arsenal have now become I don't know something like the Pavarotti story or something I mean it's ancient history who cares <laughs> well seen? clearly Arsenal do yes. <laughs> judging but by then, their Twitter well, action well, Craig, well, what about you where would you stand on that debate uh, there's merits to both obviously because you know a record points all is the best points all of any club but then there is something unique and kind of pretty special about throughout a whole season not not being able being able to prevent yourself from losing you know coming back from from being behind and and just not lose not being not losing that's mm. incredible everyone loses <laughs> so that that is an incredible feat that arsenal um achieved and i think liverpool will sort of look back and regret this a little bit personally mm. i think as well if liverpool were to go out in europe at any time before the final the season 
be a little bit of a whimpering end in a, in a year that they've won the title for the first time in 30 years. That would seem remarkable. A whimpering end, Alison. Can you believe he's just said that? He's, he's just, he just wants more Twitter followers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm with Gregor. I think it's, it would have been, uh, I'm not saying that they'll be losing sleep over it now, but I just think it would have been a great thing to chat. And I, I do think there is, in my mind, there is something more special about the, uh, the feat of, inv- of an invincible season than than trying to work out did City get the most points how many mm. more points was that than someone else I, I, I don't keep a rolling no. hole in my head of what is the record points and how much did it beat anyone else by it but I do you know you say Arsenal is in, in, invincibles to me and I'm instantly seeing the team remembering the season so yeah. But it doesn't. It's it's meaningless because Liverpool have lost games this season. So it's no, a bit no, but random. it's, it's so no, but it's a fit. Like, you're invincible in the league, yeah. But you know, Atletico beat them one 0 the other day. I mean, so what? It's like it's the overall thing, not to go through a whole league campaign without losing is a remarkable achievement. Um, and I think Liverpool. I, I look, they win the league, and it's a, it's it's going to be a, a remarkable season for them, but. If they don't win the Champions League as well or even get to the final or something, I think there'll be something, just a little bit in the back of some of the players' minds thinking this isn't quite what it looked like it could have been at kind of Christmas time. Well, other than Watford, the other big winner of that result at Vicarage Road was, of course, Arsenal, who will continue to be that invincible side for the time being. But should we be considering them the all-time greatest Premier League side because of that achievement? Uh, you've got City Centurions, United's treble winners, Chelsea's 2005 side have all made their mark on the Premier League. But I want to ask all of you for your top three Premier League sides of all time. So... A lot of grimaces and faces. I know. Oh, it's like, why It's so hard because actually, you know, the more I was thinking about it, there are some teams that, I mean, clearly won't be on anyone's top three. But, you know, the the Arsenal of 98 and that that was fantastic. And then actually, you know, pushes the United treble winners of 99 so hard. I mean, I think they only lost the league to them by a point. Obviously, there was the famous FA Cup semi-final and the replay. I mean, that, you know, that was over those couple of seasons. Obviously, United treble drowns out the, the, the their their sort of '99 efforts, uh, and understandably so. But you know, say I'm sure that team won't feature on anyone's list. <laughs> but it it was it was absolutely formidable. Yeah. Well, Matt, what is your top three then? I'm, I'm going to pass on to the others for now. Oh, okay. I, you while, want to hear what find, everyone else has no, to say? No, I'm still fine. I'm still I'm still fine. Well, actually, if you want, to be honest, I'll have to go. I don't actually think this is more, um, this is less the head talking than just the sense of covering the treble season felt. And, I, you know, people come out and say, well, are you arguing strictly on the Premier League? And But I just think covering that team that season, I, I've not experienced anything like it and probably possibly won't again. It was just... You know, and I know I'm therefore, say, bringing in the FA Cup and the European campaign and, and all the drama, but it was... It was just remarkable. I mean, even winning the league was was you know they did it. You say right to the end and in a special way. Um, am I right? Coming from behind against Tottenham was it on the last day? I think um, might have to correct that. But I think it was it was right to the to the death. And that team, for all it accomplished, a, the, the treble like that. I'm afraid it probably. I have to go with it, even though, you know, I find myself, something in my head's going, what, you're not picking the Invincibles, you know, and Thierry Henry and... and um, well, don't they come second in your list, though? Um, yeah, probably. Probably just for that achievement. But then, you know, I also find myself 
thinking, you know, there's there's arguments that Fergie's first team, the the, you know, the great '94 side, were were just in their power and must. Yeah, you know, they used to batter teams. I mean, they were the power of that side. Might have given the the treble winners a tough time. So it's it's tough. But I'll go with '99 United. You um, were right, by the way. They did come back from being a goal down well, at my, home. Even to my, memory's, my memory's my uh, memories not as bad as uh, not it's as, a, bad as I it's think. a minefield this because the, 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 <laughs> I know we're going to get too deep, <laughs> but like you could think about. The style of play, you could think about... I think there's something about the context and the narrative and there, there being some jeopardy. Well, I didn't set a criteria. Well, I know, yeah. That's, so well, that's so why hard. I brought... That's why, yeah, exactly. That's why I brought in the... You know, I, so, I, you know, I mean, I, I I would say Arsenal's Invincibles because they were like a mixture of a relentless machine with some of the greatest artists in the team that, that their Premier League has ever seen, like Henri and Bergkamp and Pires... Along yeah, with Vieira in the team and Saul Campbell at the back and Lauren, you know, it was a ridiculously good team. So I and the fact that they never lost. So they're my number one. And I would say the treble winning team, Manchester United, are number two because mm-hmm. I don't think you can ignore the context. They, no other team has ever done that. No, no team's won the treble before. And the third one is really really hard. I like. I think also you need some sort of separation in, with time as well. I think Man City's Centurions team, it was so new. The style of football they played was like nothing that the Premier League had ever seen before. And I even, you know, I don't particularly like the fact that it was such a a team that was assembled at a ridiculous cost. And, you know, we're seeing now that there could potentially be some asterisks beside it. But the football that was played there was like nothing we've ever seen before. So I think... They would be my number, th- number three. Okay. All right. Alison? They're all wrong. Oh. <laughs> Is it going to be Liverpool, Liverpool, Liverpool? <laughs> <laughs> no, in third place. Third place. It's, oh, it's like uh, the awards night again. <laughs> Chelsea winning the title in 2017 because it's the first time ever, ever the narrative has been, a, has been about a switch in formation. I've, n- I've not reported on anything like that before. Chelsea were embarrassed at Arsenal. And at half-time, Antonio Conte won the title by deciding at half-time, right, I'm switching from four at the back to three at the back, and it worked so well, he stuck with it. That 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 was remarkable. And, I, and like you both, both, both my colleagues have said, you can't separate what you were doing, and I covered a lot of that, and I was there for a lot of it, so it's bound to matter more to me because I saw it unfold firsthand. And I, but I just, I just think. We didn't know a lot about Conte and he was a tactical genius and mm. I just liked it was different. In second place, I think you can't love football if you don't put Leicester in there because Leicester gave everybody so much happiness. Yeah. And it's the same old, same old all the time and lines are drawn tribally and there's no United fan who loves a City title win, there's no Liverpool fan who loves a United title win, but everybody, everybody loved the Leicester story. It was silly, it was inexplicable, but there was some beautiful football. It threw up new heroes. I mean, Angolo Kante suddenly became the most coveted midfielder of all. Mares again, we didn't really know how beautiful he could play until he started winning the title. And Jamie Vardy, I mean, incredible character. And I mean, he came from non-league. I mean, it was the, the stories were fantastic and dilly ding, dilly dong, and all that. <laughs> it, I just can't believe that doesn't make every single person in the universe's list if they love football. And then top, I would that was put. Considered. <laughs> and they top, I they want to scrape in third, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but top, I put Liverpool because I have to. I I admit I have to. But why I, do you have to? I have to because I love them. 
<laughs> and I'm loyal. But also I think, it again, the narrative is interesting because Klopp has, has played more adventurously and Liverpool have been more attractive in recent years than they are this season, but he has done what he's had to do to give them that element of ruthlessness and pragmatism to make sure that they finally win the Premier League, Premier League title. So it's not just this season, it's the Klopp journey to this season is is mesmeric. Well, I think we all expected Liverpool to be top of the pile <laughs> for, for Alisson. But, but I liked it because your, yours wasn't as conventional as... No, they were good answers in their own way. Yeah. In their own way. Although, did you give us, did you give us your third best? Yeah, well, I was going to say, to be honest, Leicester would probably would have got on there. I mean, yeah, uh, again, as as Alison said, more for the, the drama, really. Mm. I mean, you know, the fact that if you're putting them against, say, Mourinho's first... Chelsea team, you know, I think they would fancy the fancy their chances um, against against that Leicester. But in terms of the story, it is yeah. What are we here for? We're here for for drama and great stories as much as we are for you know great f- sort of sport. That is, well, it's all part of the same thing, isn't it? And I think that but Leicester, they did play good football. Man. No, no, no. But it's not you know uh, absolutely they did play some good football. But it was. You know, if you're talking about sort of pitching one side against the other of greatest, what had the, you know, who could do it again? Obviously, Mourinho's team did it more than once, didn't they? So it's, you know, there is, you know, you, it depends really whether you're going a bit with the sort of heart and the sentiment. And we I need guess straight it, to criteria, that's what we're saying. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. well, that's absolutely fine. There was none set. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Do you know what? I think we should talk about Wilfred Zaha. Henry Winter has done a brilliant interview with him for The Times this week. The Crystal Palace winger speaks openly about the pain caused by being the pantomime villain of the Premier League and why he doesn't deserve to be booed everywhere he goes. Uh, Within the interview, they also discuss football and how he's pleased that VAR has come into the game to prove that he isn't a cheat nor a diver, but also on his life away from football and the orphanage that he has funded in the Ivory Coast run by his sister, Corrine. A really interesting interview. Does anyone have any sympathy for Wilfred Zaha? Uh, I have sympathy for anyone who's booed and sort of pilloried by the supporters almost everywhere they go. Mm. But it's limited because I think he he plays up to it a little bit. And I think he did again at the weekend. He was cupping his ears to the fans and wiping away imaginary tears and 
get into arguments with substitutes, even if he kicked the ball at him. Um, and the truth is, he, when he plays, he very often has a face like a bag of smashed crabs. He looks, oh. he looks like. Is that a Scottish expression? Yes, yeah, a little bit. I've never yeah. heard that before. <laughs> he looks, he looks like he's in pain. He looks like you know the world is against him, and he does get rough, rough treatment. He does. Everyone accuses him of diving, um, but he looks like it's me against the world a little bit, um, mm. and so I think, I think probably he brings a little bit on himself. Is he a pantomime villain, Alison? Uh, well, he's become a pantomime villain because he's a bit different, and p- human beings are cruel and they don't like people who are different. He's a very emotional man. Henry said in his piece he'd not met him before. I interviewed him a few years back when he came back to Palace having had a horrible time at Old Trafford and he was virtually in tears. He's just an emotional person and he feels things really deeply and he feels he was sold a promise by Fergie then Fergie left and he was left high and dry at Old Trafford and he doesn't like the way people will see a performance and then they'll write about what it means and it's not what he sees it as meaning. I mean, he has to be less sensitive, I suppose, because that's the way the world works. If you don't play well, people will write why they think you're not playing well. And he didn't like the assumptions being made about himself. But, I mean, it's very hard to dislike a young man who thinks deeply about things Please. and outside of football as well and, and gets oversensitive about criticism. And then it wraps up in itself, doesn't it? So that's why he starts cupping his ears, Gregor, yeah, because he, he knows he's expecting it and he's trying to deal with it and trying to make it work for him out on the pitch, but it whether, will it will mean it gets more of it. And whether that sensitivity is part of well, part of why he um, failed at United, also, I mean, also now why you know, I mean, he he sort of very naively, I think, um, and there is some of the, I think, show his reticence about him is to do you know with sort of career management. I mean, you know, you sign a long contract at Crystal Palace, then hope you know, sort of wonder why you haven't got a transfer to Arsenal. Oddly enough, Crystal Palace, if they sell you, they think they're going to get relegated, so demand 80 million quid. You you can't... He seemed to be wanting the sort of... to have his cake and eat it a bit in terms of career management. Um, so I think that's that's not always helped, shall we say, helped his case. But I do think when it comes to... Do I want to see Wilfred Zaha not booted up in the air and, you know, given due sort of protection. I think the game should be about, well, certainly officiating should be to, to a, a large degree about protecting the skillful players. And he does get, he does, you know, draw his share of, more than his share of fouls. He's also very easily wild. I mean, he's the kind of player that every manager before a game would be saying, get in his ear. Hmm. And it, I think the last two Southampton, the game, times we've played Southampton, James Ward-Prowse has had him on toast. He's like, Without actually... You know, it's not like he marked him out the game or anything. He could just, he had a wee smile or a wee grin on his face when he could maybe gave him a wee nudge when it was just on the side of the pitch. And, and he reacts so so angrily. He needs to be able to control his emotions a little bit more. And as Alison said, that's... Would you have gone he, for him or, say, Pepe if you were Arsenal at that type of money? I think so has a better player. Uh, but there are some kind of question marks about his, about his temperament. temperament. Um yeah. And as you say, the way his career's been managed, he's, what is he now, 26, maybe in 27? So um, that's a lot of money to spend and you're not probably going to see it back. So, But look, he's a fantastic player and he should be protected. I just think he could probably help himself a little bit too. I remember speaking to Andros Townsend and, and he was saying about how 
he is unfairly treated. He doesn't get the protection that he deserves. There is that tag of cheat. There is that tag of a diver. Does he deserve that? Is that was that unfair, Alison? I don't think. I honestly don't think he dives more than anybody else. He, but players who are fast and have a few tricks up their sleeve will fall over. He doesn't have a low centre of gravity, so he will stumble if you click his he, clip his heels or just nudge him, and he's going fast. I, the, I'm sure there's been a few occasions where he might look like he's thought I'm going to deliberately fall now because I think. I'm better off getting the penalty or the free kick. I don't think that's part of his psyche. I think he genuinely wants to create create havoc legitimately. It's just it's just a combination of his style of play. As Gregor says, he is targeted. I don't think managers. I don't think I don't think Gregor. Sometimes managers think they should tell their players to target him. I think they all do. Yeah. They just know. They just know you can, you can you can wind him up a bit. But be it'd be nice. It'd be nice if more often. He took that and it made him produce a 10 out of 10 performance. Yeah. There's been instances where it's just been so clear. I mean, Sheffield United in both games, I remember oh, yeah, at the start yeah, of the yeah. season, Baldock, the right back, was just leaving one on him. And he was, they were going off the pitch at half time, like arguing, and he, he looked enraged. And then they played in the second game. I think Baldock was booked early on. And Sheffield United just rotated and got somebody else to give him a little, <laughs> leave the foot on him a little bit. It's part of the game. And Matthew, Matthew Syed wrote a really good column actually after that game saying, should, it's hard to I could, I, it's hard to see how they would do it but to kind of be able to punish teams for rotational fouling as if, you know, I'm not sure how you could do that but it's a valid point and it was clear that Sheffield United had done it he, that's something he could change if he didn't react in the way he reacted then teams wouldn't be quite as keen to do it But as it is, it is part of the game you're always going to want to stop the most influential player of an opposing team but when it comes to Wilfred Zaha Gregor and this reputation that he comes with, how hard is that to, to change it, to shift that? I think it is quite hard, yeah. I mean, as, I, as I've already said, the players know about it. Mm. And I think probably it does subconsciously affect some refereeing decisions. Yeah. I think if, you know, I think of players that have been given this tag over the years. Ashley Young was another one who sometimes you would see, you think maybe that was a foul and he would be booked. And, you know, I think it does, I think it can have an effect on referees as well so um, I'm not sure whether he can change it now and I think it's probably part of what makes him the player he is too really that's the other most things are going to balance out like that I think he he's an emotional player and he uh, that that's maybe how he gets the best out of himself mm. but it also kind of has this other side to it Alison when you hear that Gregor's saying that referees could be influenced by him the way he performs on the pitch is that something you buy into do referees do that well i don't i I think referees don't like being taken for mugs and if they believe that he falls over too easily and is looking to fall over they will it's only human nature that when he does fall in the game you're officiating there's an element of cynicism in your head but it shouldn't be there it just shouldn't be there and we go back to the very start of this segment, Natalie, and you mentioning VAR. I mean, this ought to, if it's in an, if it's in the box, certainly, it ought to be uh, a, a better, a better, way, better way of life for, for Will Saha that it's there. If that bias has crept into the way it's being refereed, mm. but it shouldn't that, that bias should not be there at all. But they're, you know, you, just human beings. And as I've said many times, so are the VAR people. They're human beings too.
Now, I'm going to end today's podcast with the big story of the weekend, over 50s <laughs> football. Matt, tell us about this piece that you've written for Times online. Uh, well, that'll teach me to... Um to uh, chat to uh, Tom in the office and just yeah say what I was doing at the weekend and uh, yeah no it was really just um, I'd, I'd started uh, I'd given up playing 11 aside um, for probably very good reasons um, I'm getting old and uh, things start to hurt and I basically got fed up with chasing whippersnapper 35 year olds around a pitch and being humiliated <laughs> um, and then luckily stumbled on a couple of mates playing a over proper over you know there's no ringers allowed. You you must be fifty plus, and many are sixty plus. And it's just reborn my love for for the game. That sort of childlike, you know, you know, it's that Sunday morning, getting your boots ready, getting your shin pads ready, um, and you know, players, uh, people in the, the at the top of the game, you know, managers especially always say, you know, nothing beats playing. And actually, you know, if there is a connection between what I do and um, proper football, um, it is just that sense of nothing beats playing football you know we love watching it we love talking about it but still to be able even um yeah even even now still to be able to run out on a sunday morning and and feel the love of it like you're still 10 it feels quite special but is the problem running out on the pitch feeling like you you're 10 again but actually your body isn't anywhere near that. well but that's the great thing if you are playing if you are playing with your peers um which yeah say in my case is over 50 then that 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 does remove you know removes that sort of sense of you know there's always you know this sort of you know the the the, the fast you know, youngsters running off of the ball or you know and people being feeling like there's not a there's not a pleasure for them in it that it's only going to be hard work or so you know it it's we we spend as much time laughing as we do passing <laughs> you know i mean it is it is just sort of one sort of um you know calamity after another um yeah and yet occasionally you know you you take that shot, you trap that ball, you hit that pass that it makes you think, ah, oh, you know, still I've got still it. got it. <laughs> just, yeah, I've still got it. It just might be a bit slower than, well, I than, love, than I remember. I love this bit in the in the piece where you've said you've once asked a teammate for a give and go, which got the reply, give and go, I'm 50 effing nine, I'll give, but I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> and that is a true story, honestly. It was the first time I played for them. I, yeah, you're not the worst. And, and, and again, that, yeah, literally the sort of, you know, the game stopped for... Uh, for uh, laughter and again that's that's you know when you played at 10 you know you were just thinking about having f fun with your mates and obviously things get more serious but it does feel a bit like back to that sort of roots of why we just all uh, have all run out with a ball when we're kids and just got those basic little pleasures from it and and was this you that uh, shot at goal and it hit uh, the corner flag oh and yeah well my mate so he hadn't so he had not played eleven aside football for twenty something years. I mean, it was like so. I talked him back into it. He had done his Achilles years ago, and just thought not for me. Came back, and yeah, and he he ended up charging into the box on his wrong foot, and in the sort of confusion between limbs, brain, sort of trying to remember how you do it. He uh, yeah, he he shanked his shot, which flew off towards a corner flag and he pulled his hamstring all in the, oh. same, in the same moment. And oh, again, goodness. we had to stop the game, A, to carry him off and B, to uh, stop giggling. So it's, uh, yeah, play, I, yeah. Uh, so really it was a piece about about um, about playing football and, mm. and how, um, yeah, it's it's it can still feel a wonder even if, uh, even if you're old and past it. Wow. This is a great opportunity for us to sort of single out your greatest moments in your 
footballing careers, amateur or professional. Um, Gregor, we're going to come to you last on this one, I think. But Alison, what about you? I've got lots and I don't want to be self-indulgent and all <laughs> my great player of the match and all this sort of stuff. So Well, this I'm is a podcast all about awards. So. Yeah, no, um, I'm going to say when I was when I was little, when I was a little girl, I was told I couldn't play football. And the closest I got was being in goal for my friend's brother's shooting practice, which isn't playing football, that's just being hurt on purpose. <laughs> and so to eventually learn to play as an adult, and again, I was in teams where they didn't want me, because I could only find men's teams to start with. Mm. And I would get, oh, what are you doing here? You're a girl. And I, I know when I'm on my deathbed, I will look back and I will be so glad that I didn't, you know, just slink off feeling pathetic. I would just, I said, well, I, I, I want to play. I just want, I'm going to stay. Hmm. And they'd go, oh God, all right. And then I had to, I had to, I stayed part of it because of my energy. So I would be the one that would just, I played up front because they thought it was the safest place to put me. And I would be running around, harrying all the defenders, all the defenders, putting in lots of effort, lots of effort where most people were just strolling around. And, it, you know, week by week, month by month, year by year, I got this grudging respect for always being the one that turned up. I always brought the footballs, I brought the bibs, I organised the teams, I made sure it happened and I slowly learned a few skills along the way and I might grab the odd talented player and say, how did you do that? Can you show me how you did that? And I never became a very good player, but I think my love, my absolute love for it made sure I put up with a load of crap and then I did play for a women's team and you know I did win awards and um, I used to sometimes train play a match in the park and then literally run up and down escalators so I could get to training with my women's team and then breathlessly get back late at night and then go and play in a match the next day and every every hour in between work I could do that I did it because I was squeezing in the childhood I never had so I had, I had to make up for time. So I'm just really pleased I didn't let those horrible blokes at the beginning put me off and I kept going because it's given me, it has given me my, my greatest pleasures in life is actually setting up a goal is the thing I love the most. Oh, like good that. answer. Nice, yeah. Matt. Uh, greatest, well, this is going to sound awfully name drop, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, I would say, I mean, I've been th through the job um, I, and I've been really lucky to have um, played at uh, played at the old Wembley, played at the new Wembley, played, scored at the Cop End at Anfield. So, none of these in games that would um, draw much of a crowd, it's got to be said. But I would say the greatest uh, moment or the greatest privilege, uh, it's come to the last weekend of the 95 league season. There's been all this stuff between Fergie and Kenny Dalglish about, you know, Who's who's going to bottle it, etc. And uh, I was covering those clubs at the time, and Kenny Dalglish, in his determination to show that they were not bottling it, invited some of us to play a match against him and his backroom staff on the couple of days before the the finale to the season. And so it was a sort of yeah, this is how relaxed we are. We're even going to let you lot come in. And anyway, played against. Uh, 
Kenny and I think Asa Hartford was playing and I think they may have had a very young Shea given in goal. Anyway, to cut a long story short, we lost, mm. I think memory's right, 17 nil. Oh. Um, and I just remember spending... It's moment. <laughs> uh, well, I know, but I just remember spending this entire game thinking I'm going to get one tackle on Doug Leach. I'm just, you know, there is going to be something that means I can just come away going, you know, I got past him, I nicked the ball off him, I did something and I didn't get close. I mean, it was such a lesson in, you know, even when there were times that he would get the ball back to me, I'd be, th- th- what I thought, thundering in to get him and suddenly he would have gone one way, the ball would have gone the other and it was, it was such... Uh, well, I mean, from the sidelines, such an embarrassment, humiliation. But it felt it felt as such a privilege to be up close to one of the greatest British players of all time, and even at whatever age he was at then, just to have a sense of a guy who can see three moves ahead. I mean, it felt like he knew, you know, he knew where I was going to go more than I did. You know, it was just that that um, yeah, it was to see world a world class player up close felt um, felt very special so yeah losing 17-0 remains the uh, the greatest moment of our well, football highlight. career okay <laughs> come on Gregor let's hear yours then uh, I never you know I never managed to reach the, the top level but um, winning the League 2 title nine months of being kind of completely invested in in, in that achievement uh, that was with Chesterfield that was that was great but my but, my best moment was actually probably my last game in professional football, um, winning the National League playoff final at, at Wembley with Grimsby Town. Um, because the year before we'd been in the same final and we'd lost on penalty kicks to, to Bristol Rovers, um, which was so devastating to take. Um, and the next year we were back and I think just Grimsby, the football club is such a huge part of that town and they'd been out of the football league for six years and to know how much it meant to everyone um we we were two one up against forest green uh, in the final and we were holding on for dear life and then we scored a third in the 94th minute and i think that's the single most kind of joyous moment i've ever had on a football pitch we're all just running off like kind <laughs> of school children because you knew it was over um and the celebrations were pretty good too uh so i think that's the most it was a good way for me to go, to be honest. Mm. That was my best moment. I and think. to win a, an actual playoff final—that's yeah. I mean, special. the elite, you know, winning a league title is is great because you do it over a, a full season, and it's and that's that seems to be the that's the biggest achievement I think. But the playoffs are something unique. You know, so much pressure on them, mm. and one day out at Wembley, we because we'd been there the year before as well, we kind of we weren't allowing ourselves to to lose again. It was like we knew we knew we were going to win. Um, we just had to go out and do it. So. Yeah, Wembley. Wembley in the sunshine, National League playoff final, that was my best moment. And what about since retiring? How's it been? How have you, how have you filled the void of not playing football anymore? Well, it's funny, listen to Matt say that about the kind of r- reminding him of playing like a, a kid. Professional football is nothing like that. It was, wasn't for me anyway. It's That's gone as soon as it becomes a profession. So it was. I don't miss the actual playing football so much. I miss competition. That's the thing you can never, ever replace. It's no matter what you do. It, it's like drawing the kind of... drawing every last sinew out of yourself every day in training, competing to get in a team to, against your own teammates, competing every Saturday against opposition. 
trying to win, trying to kind of survive sometimes at that at that level as well. But it's that competition is what I miss the most. I've played, I played when I moved to London a couple of years ago. A, a friend of mine uh, plays in a team that's called the Rob Roy Reds. It's full entirely of Aberdonians <laughs> who live down here. Um, so I've gone along and played a, a few times with them, and I really enjoyed it. It was kind of don't get me wrong. There were some times when there was the the nineteen year old whippersnapper running past me. I'm thinking, what am I doing here? But just there's no pressure. There's no kind of you know you can go for a, a pint afterwards and you're still in your kit. The things that kind of a bit more normal. I really enjoyed doing that as well. So a bit of competition and a bit more lighthearted. Mm. Okay, that is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Matt Dickinson and Alison Rudd. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information and we'll be back on Thursday. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.